Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, literally Heather. Uh, Joe Biden said on Tuesday that his March 9th budget proposal to the United States Congress will include some higher taxes, including on billionaires, but will not violate his pledge not to raise rates on Americans making less than $400,000 a year. I think Joe Biden believes that if you say the same thing over and over and over and over again, that not only will people believe you, but eventually like you'll believe yourself, even though you're lying. I pay more in taxes this year than I have ever in my lifetime and my income didn't change. Anyway, his exact quote is, on March the 9th, I'm going to lay down in detail every single thing, every tax that's out there that I'm proposing and no one making less than $400,000 is going to pay a penny more in taxes. I want to make it clear, I'm going to raise some taxes. Billionaires will be called upon to pay more. Biden, under pressure from Republicans who are threatening not to raise the U.S. debt limit unless he agrees to sharp spending cuts, has vowed to cut the deficit by $2 trillion over 10 years in the upcoming budget proposal. He has challenged Republicans to release their own proposals and to negotiate over those plans rather than over whether the country should raise the debt ceiling and pay its existing bills, citing possible damage to the economy from an unprecedented United States default. Maybe you shouldn't spend more than what you have. Biden's remarks came in a state that Democrats regard as politically competitive. It was the latest in a series of campaign-style events designed to draw a sharp contrast with Republicans in the weeks before Biden is expected to announce his 2024 re-election bid. While Republican lawmakers have not yet fully outlined or voted on their spending plans for the coming fiscal year, the White House has nonetheless seized on some past statements and proposals by members of Congress as evidence that they are hell-bent on unraveling federal health care and old age programs popular with voters. Tuesday's event focused on government health insurance programs under Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act, which is also known as Obamacare. Biden has vowed to strengthen support for those and other federal programs. You know, ever since the State of the Union address, I cannot figure out the shift in language. Uh, Many of Democratic politicians, talking heads on the media, news articles, they're all talking about health care and the Affordable Care Act. Like, it was passed in 2008. Why are they talking about healthcare right now? Oh, right. The economy is in shambles. Food prices are insane. Energy prices are ridiculous. Government spending is absolutely out of control. And you and your cohorts are more worried about Ukraine than you are about the United States. That's why you're talking about healthcare. Unfortunately, healthcare is no better. Humana just pulled out of the group insurance market. Insurance premiums are higher than ever across the country, and healthcare and drug costs are absurd, due largely in part to the Affordable Care Act. 
Conservative justices holding the Supreme Court's majority seem ready to sink President Joe Biden's plan to wipe away or reduce student loans held by millions of Americans. In arguments lasting more than three hours Tuesday, Chief Justice John Roberts led his conservative colleagues in questioning the administration's authority to broadly cancel federal student loans because of the COVID-19 emergency. Loan payments that have been on hold since the start of the coronavirus pandemic three years ago are supposed to resume no later than this summer. Without the loan relief promised by the Biden plan, the administration's top Supreme Court lawyer said, delinquencies and defaults will surge. The plan has so far been blocked by Republican-appointed judges on lower courts. It did not appear to fare any better with the six justices appointed by Republican presidents. Biden's only hope for being allowed to move forward appeared to be the slim possibility based on the arguments that the court would find that Republican-led states and individuals challenging the plan lacked the legal right to sue. That would allow the court to dismiss the lawsuits at a threshold stage without ruling on the basic idea of loan forgiveness, and that appeared to trouble the justices on the court's right side. This will be interesting because during the 2020 election, states could not bring a suit to argue that due to unconstitutional changes that vote casting to vote casting that their voters were disenfranchised, it lacked standing. In this case, it could be argued the same that states do not have standing. Roberts was among the justices who grilled Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogar and suggested that the administration has exceeded its authority. Three times the chief justice said the program would cost half a trillion dollars, pointing to its wide impact and hefty expense as reasons the administration should have gotten explicit approval from Congress. The program, which the administration says is grounded in a 2003 law that was enacted in response to military conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, is estimated to cost $400 billion over 30 years. If you're talking about this in the abstract, I think the most casual observers would say, if you're going to give up that much money, if you're going to affect the obligations of that many Americans on a subject that is of great controversy, then they would think that's something for the Congress to act on, Robert said. Justice Brett Kavanaugh suggested that he agreed, saying that it seemed problematic for the administration to use an old law, unilaterally implement a debt relief program that Congress has declined to adopt. Neither justice seemed swayed by Prelogar's explanation that the administration was citing the national emergency created by the pandemic as the authority for the debt relief program under a law commonly known as the HEROES Act. Some of the biggest mistakes in the court's history were deferring to assertions of executive emergency power, Kavanaugh said. Some of the finest moments in the court's history were pushing back against presidential assertions of emergency power. At another point, though, Kavanaugh suggested the program might be on firmer legal ground than other pandemic-related programs that were ended by the court's conservative majority, including an eviction moratorium and a requirement for vaccines or frequent testing in large workplaces. The justices' questions mirrored the partisan political divide over the issue, 
with conservatives arguing that non-college workers should not be penalized and liberals arguing for the break for a break for the college educated. The administration says the HEROES Act allows the Secretary of Education to waive or modify the terms of federal student loans in connection with a national emergency. Parties generally have to show that they would suffer financial harm in order to have standing in cases such as this. A federal judge initially found that the states would not be harmed and dismissed their lawsuit before an appellate panel said that the case could proceed. Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined the three liberal justices in repeatedly questioning Campbell on that issue, but it would take at least another conservative vote to form a majority. Parties generally have to show that they would suffer financial harm in order to have standing in cases such as this. Like I said earlier, um, Walmart has a clear directive for its employees Tuesday regarding generative artificial intelligence like chat GPT. Do not share information about Walmart with the rising technology. In an internal memo to employees, Walmart Global Tech, the retailer's technology and software engineering arm, said that it previously blocked ChatGPT after they noticed activity that presented risk to the company. The memo, which Insider had viewed, added, we've since taken time to evaluate and develop a set of usage guidelines around generative AI tools and are now opening ChatGPT for usage within the Walmart network. Walmart spokesperson Aaron Holleberger did not address inquiries about when the company blocked the generative AI and what was the nature of the activity, telling Insider in a statement that most technologies present new benefits as well as new risk. It's not uncommon for us to assess these technologies and provide our associates with usage guidelines. The guidelines include telling Walmart employees they should avoid inputting any sensitive confidential or proprietary information, such as financial or strategic information or personal information about shoppers and employees into ChatGPT. Employees should not put any information about Walmart's business, including business process, policy, or strategy into these tools, the memo said. Walmart employees must also review outputs of these tools before relying on the information they provide, according to the memo. And employees should not cut and paste existing code into these tools or use these tools to create new code. It keeps saying employees should not blah, 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 blah. And at the time of reading this, I was like, is this for just like regular employees? Did this go out to everybody or just the people working in the software department? Because I didn't see how it was relevant to your average Walmart worker who can barely take the time to pick up the phone when someone calls Walmart, let alone using chat GPT to write code in aisle nine while they're at work. Um, But I get it if it's just the software department. Uh, Putting Walmart information into these tools risks exposure of the company's information, may breach confidentiality, and may significantly impact our rights in any code, product, information, or content, per the memo. Every associate is responsible for the appropriate use and protection of Walmart data. At the end of the memo, Walmart Global Tech touted that ChatGPT can enhance efficiency and innovation, but it and other AI tools must be used appropriately. This 
memo comes out one month after companies like Amazon and Microsoft issued similar warnings to their employees about entering confidential information into ChatGPT. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is projected to lose her bid for re-election in a stunning blow to an incumbent who made headlines as an underdog reformer candidate who defied expectations and won the city's top job in 2019. I mean, is it really that stunning? The woman hired the census cowboy, a man who had been arrested nine times in Chicago alone, including a felony gun conviction, and had a pending domestic violence arrest at the time of hiring him to serve as an ambassador for the city. She has had three years of the highest homicide rate since 1999, with a total of 2,266 people during her reign as Queen Beetlejuice being murdered. Lightfoot on Tuesday failed to be one of the top two vote getters to notch a spot in the final round of voting in April, according to the Associated Press, making her the city's first mayor to lose re-election in 40 years. A runoff was expected, given the unlikeliness that any one candidate could outright win at least half of the vote on Tuesday. Paul Vallis, former Chicago's public schools CEO, and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson are projected to face each other in the April 4th runoff. Lightfoot said during her concession concession speech, oh my gosh, I can't talk right now, her concession speech on Tuesday evening that she called both Vallis and Johnson to congratulate them on making it into the runoff. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high, she told her supporters. For what? You have turned that city into a total hellhole and you lost your election. You should hang your head in total shame. The Chicago mayor's tenure has, at times, been colored by contentious relationships she's had with individuals and groups like the Chicago Teachers Union. Experts suggested ahead of the race that it wasn't clear what type of constituency would even vote for Lightfoot ahead of the race, given that some groups who had once backed her, including the city's white and progressive-leaning Northside Lakefront cohort, appeared less likely to endorse her again. Y'all, Lightfoot was so bad that not even the suburban white moms who drink box wine would vote for her. The Biden administration is weighing approval of a major oil project on Alaska's petroleum-rich North Slope that supporters say represents an economic lifeline for indigenous communities in the region, but environmentalists say is counter to President Joe Biden's climate goals. A decision on ConocoPhillips Alaska's Willow Project in federal oil reserve in a federal oil reserve roughly the size of Indiana, could come by early March. What is the Willow Project, you ask? The project could produce up to 180,000 barrels of oil per day, according to the company, which is about 1.5% of total U.S. oil production. But in Alaska, Willow represents the biggest oil field in decades, Alaska Republican U.S. Senate Senator Dan Sullivan said the development could be one of the biggest, most important resource development projects in our state's history. 
on average about 499,700 barrels a day, flow through the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, well below the 1980s peak of 2.1 million barrels. ConocoPhillips Alaska has proposed five drilling sites as part of the project. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management in early February identified up to three drill sites initially as a preferred alternative, which ConocoPhillips said it considered as a viable option. But the U.S. Interior Department, which oversees the Bureau, took the unusual step of issuing a separate statement expressing expressing substantial concerns with the alternative and the project in general. The alternative showed extracting and using the oil from Willow and would produce the equivalent of more than 278 million tons of greenhouse gases over the project's 30-year life, roughly equal to the combined emissions from 2 million passenger cars over the same time period. It would have roughly 2% reduction in emissions compared to ConocoPhillips' favorite approach. There is widespread political support in Alaska, including from the bipartisan congressional delegation, Republican Governor Mike Dunleavy, and state lawmakers. There is also a majority consensus support in the North Slope region, said Nagrik Hart. I'm really going to butcher these names because they're all native. Harcherek president of the group voice of the Arctic Inupiat, whose members include leaders from across much of that region. Supporters have called the project balanced and say communities would benefit from taxes generated by Willow to invest in infrastructure and provide public services. Biden faces a dilemma that pits Alaska lawmakers against environmental groups. And many Democrats in Congress who say the project is out of step with Biden's goals to slash planet-warming carbon emissions in half by 2030 and move to clean energy. Here's what's really fucking interesting about this. I don't give a shit about environmental groups. They're not elected officials. The state of Alaska elected people to make decisions for the state of Alaska. Those environmental groups don't mean shit to me as a voter and as a citizen that would benefit from this. I apologize. Um, Biden has made fighting climate change a top priority and backed a landmark law to accelerate expansion of clean energy, such as wind and solar power, and move the U.S. away from the oil, oil, coal, and gas. He faces attacks from Republican lawmakers who blame Biden for gasoline price spikes that occurred after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The interesting thing is that the Biden administration supported Willow at one point in time. The Justice Department attorneys in 2021 defended in court an environmental review conducted during the Trump administration that approved the project. But a federal judge later found flaws with the analysis, setting aside the approval and returning the matter to the land management agency for further work. That led to the review that was released in early February. That is your everything yesterday, this morning on a Wednesday. Join us this evening for the next three chapters of Waco, a survivor's story by David Thibodeau. Otherwise, I will see you guys tomorrow. Take care and have a great day. 
If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.